This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Three interviews this week, including two climate scientists. Andy Pittman, new science on how climate really hits us, plus Johan Rockstrom, the Swedish leader of Planetary Boundaries, followed by Lynn Benander on community power in New England. Let's go. It may get hotter where you are sooner than you think. New science reveals many parts of the world won't have to wait long to experience unsafe heating and disruptive changes in precipitation. Once again, we underestimate the climate threat. Dr. Andy J. Pittman is a British atmospheric scientist. Now he's the director of Australia's ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate System Science at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Pittman is co-author of a new piece in the journal Nature titled Allowable CO2 Emissions Based on Regional and Impact-Related Climate Targets. We'll see what that means. Andy, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Okay, two degrees C of warming was supposed to be the safe line. Now it's not. But Andy, part of the world has already gone past two degrees C of warming, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Where is that? First of all, the two degrees being safe has never been a scientific target, as far as I know. It's always been a target agreed uh, politically as uh, something that's actually achievable. So for two degrees in the global mean warming, we would obviously anticipate major changes in climate because we're observing major changes in climate for a global mean warming of less than one degree. And if we're seeing substantial changes in climate for less than one degree, it's a bit difficult to argue that two degrees is somehow safe. So first of all, two degrees isn't a target that I think is safe, but it's much safer than three degrees. But a two degree increase in the mean obviously isn't a two degree increase in every single place on Earth. It, there is a very strong regional differentiation in how that global two degrees is, is made up. And on average, you would expect certain regions to warm by more and certain regions to warm by less. For example, the oceans have phenomenal inertia. They warm up more slowly than the land. So immediately you should be able to imagine that for a two-degree global mean, you would expect the continental surfaces to warm by more than the ocean surfaces. Once you take the continental surfaces into account, then you're looking for places where there are feedbacks that would amplify the local warming. There's two particular things that one can imagine in the shorter term. One is where there is snow cover and that snow is melted earlier or never accumulates because of the, uh, the warming. You get the well-known snow albedo feedback where less snow means a darker surface that absorbs more radiation and gives you a stronger warming signal because there are mechanisms operating as a positive or a amplifying feedback on the warming in general. And the other classic example is a place where traditionally there's been quite a lot of soil moisture. That tends to mean that the available energy is used for evaporative cooling. If those soils dry out, you don't get the evaporation. You instead exchange energy more as um, what's called sensible heat, which tends to amplify the warming. 
you can imagine for a global warming of two degrees, you would expect amplification over the continents and further amplification in particular regions where these important feedbacks can dominate uh, the radiative forcing caused by elevated carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. All right. Now, we know the Arctic is quite a bit warmer than it used to be, and right about as we're doing this interview, it's incredibly warm. Do you worry about rising methane emissions in the Arctic, and should we take that as seriously as we do carbon dioxide? One of the key things about our paper is that we expect there's a reasonable chance that most of the key tipping points are not likely to be exceeded for a regional warming of two degrees. We're not sure about that. It's not a certainty statement. It's a probability statement. So we think a lot of the tipping points are probably stable enough that if the local temperatures warm by two degrees, it's unlikely those tipping points would be triggered. However, we're seeing much, much more warming than two degrees over certain regions, one of which, as you point out, is the Arctic, for the reasons in part to do with the snow albedo feedback I talked about a few months ago. So for a global mean warming of two degrees, we're looking at warming of maybe six or eight degrees over the Arctic. I think the probability of those tipping points being triggered with warming of eight degrees is extremely likely. One of those key tipping points is the destabilization of uh, the Arctic permafrost. When you melt the permafrost, you release the gases stored, and you also accelerate the rate of uh, microbial activity in the soils. That tends to lead to very large releases in methane. And so one of my deep concerns is that for a global mean warming of 2 degrees, brackets, a regional warming over the Arctic of 6 to 8 degrees, the tipping points that we're fearful of would indeed be triggered, leading to much larger releases in methane in those regions. And that is why I'm not at all confident that we will be able to limit warming to two degrees because the so-called emission scenarios that enable the global mean temperature to be limited to two degrees don't take into account destabilization of some of the natural sinks and stores for carbon dioxide and methane. And I think we're going to destabilize those stores and are, in fact, destabilizing those stores with one degree of warming. And therefore, it's very unlikely that somehow they'll remain stable as we go to two degrees in the global mean, given the new evidence that two degrees in the global mean means six degrees in the Arctic. All right. Now, a decade ago, regional climate predictions were pretty hazy. How did your team manage to nail down the climate trajectory on a more local level? We looked at all of the available climate models, and we didn't attempt to say this is what the warming will be. We looked at the range in warming that you obtain across all of the models, and we looked to see where the models were confident in that and where they were less confident. And obviously the climate models are more confident where the forcing is strongest. And because of the ice albedo feedback, uh, I think the changes in the high latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere uh, are areas we have considerable confidence over. I think we have less confidence over some of the changes that might take place in the tropics. And although it may not interest most of your listeners, one of the really interesting results we found is considerable 
uncertainty in the southern hemisphere. And we suspect that's because the, at least I suspect that's because some of the model development that's been done internationally has lacked particular focus on the southern hemisphere because most of the modeling groups are in the northern hemisphere. Uh, so it all depends on where you're talking about. Uh, I think the very large amplification in the Arctic and some of the temperate zones is quite reasonably reliable. But even if it's not, it points to a risk. And I'd like people to stop thinking about what we know for sure and start thinking about where risks are emerging. Because in any other field, such as business, one develops one's business with a good understanding of risk and one thinks about how to avoid those particular risks and minimize your vulnerability to, to external factors. And I think in climate science, we need to do very much the same in how we deal with global warming. We need to stop worrying about are we sure about something and be much clearer that what the models are telling us about are emerging risks and those need to be managed in the same way as they would be managed in any other field. I think that's a great point. I think you've just taught me something more. Well, let's get specific. Let's talk about one region in your study which will warm two degrees or more by 2030, which is only 15 years away. Why don't we start with your findings on the Mediterranean countries? It sort of builds on your earlier question. The Mediterranean is one of the places where there is extremely consistent results from the climate models. And I think the reason for that is to do with the particular synoptic situation that the Mediterranean finds itself in, and that it's warming due to the overall greenhouse effect. But there's also a soil moisture signal there, that you dry the Mediterranean even drier than it it traditionally is, and as you dry the area, you reduce evaporation, and you increase the direct heating from the land via the sensible heat fluxes, and that amplifies the overall pattern of warming for, for instance, two degrees. So we're not the first to draw attention to the Mediterranean. Uh, Many groups around the world have identified the Mediterranean as a particularly vulnerable region and a region that's particularly um, sensitive to mean warming. So in that sense, our results really for the Mediterranean are largely confirming results that are being found by earlier groups. So what does overheating in the Mediterranean or other regions that you've identified tell us about the limits we need to set on global emissions? So there is a so-called global emission limit of 1,000 billion tonnes, which has been talked about, and it was talked about in the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. A very important thing about that is that that 1,000 billion tonnes assumes no uh, destabilisation of natural stores of carbon or methane. And as I said earlier, I think that's incompatible with how we understand the Earth system to work. Taking it beyond that argument, if you want to avoid warming a region by more than two degrees, and we're able to show that for a global mean warming of two degrees, a particular region might warm by four degrees, it obviously means that you have to reduce the allowable emissions globally to substantially below two degrees. And that, I fear, is emerging from a lot of studies now that two degrees isn't safe because a two-degree warming is expressed over the land surface 
by warming of much more than two degrees. And it's not expressed as a sort of a, a regional average warming of two degrees. It's expressed, for instance, by earlier spring heat waves or the ability of a landscape to continue to grow through a winter because the winter is several degrees warmer than it used to be, or it's expressed by summer heat waves lasting longer. And as your listeners would know, if you have a heat wave that traditionally lasts three days and it starts to last five days, the impacts that has on ecosystems, but also primarily on human health, can be way out of proportion to only an extra day or two. An important thing about our paper is not that if the globe warms by two degrees, the Mediterranean might warm by four degrees. It's how that warming takes place. And it isn't just everywhere gets a little bit warmer through the year. That warming tends to be concentrated in particular periods. And that can have profound impacts on, on human populations, but also a range of other socio-environmental factors. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. We're joined by atmospheric scientist Dr. Andy J. Pittman. I think the other startling result in this paper is the timing of climate impacts. We're used to reports talking about things happening by 2100, frankly, after we're dead. Now science has shortened that fuse. Serious impacts may be less than 15 years away. Did that surprise your team? Not particularly, because whilst you're absolutely right in how you introduced that question, the climate scientists have been drawing attention to uh, extreme events, which can in part be attributable to global warming, having occurred over the last few decades. So we are observing extreme events that can either be explained by global warming or have been amplified by global warming or their probability has been increased by global warming over the last couple of decades. Now, if we have been observing very large changes in extreme events over the last decade, it's hardly surprising that we'll see that over the next couple of decades as warming intensifies. So I think our results aren't particularly surprising in that regard. I do think it's helpful to draw attention to the 2030s because it's obviously in, in the sort of timescales people plan for with infrastructure and a range of other things. But I don't want your listeners to think about global warming as a future impact. Anyone who works in climate science knows that we have been observing substantial changes over the last few decades. And indeed, groups in ecology, uh, groups in oceanography, groups in uh, glacial sciences and people working in areas of human health have clearly identified uh, changes in the systems they're familiar with as a consequence of the observed changes to date. So think of global warming as a clear and present danger, not as something that uh, we should be worried about evolving by 2030, for instance. I have to ask you, though, for those countries that aren't going to warm faster, I mean, in Canada, people might welcome some warming. Do we need to worry less about climate change then since it's not going to affect our country that fast? If the warming was sort of um, a little warming on each day of the year, uh, my experience of Canada, which have always been fantastic, suggests that that wouldn't be in any sense catastrophic. But it ain't like that. That's not how warming happens. 
If you manage to warm a region of uh, eastern or western Canada by three degrees on the annual average, but all that warming happens in July, the amount it warms in July is vastly more than three degrees, and you start to get serious heat wave conditions. Now, I remember summers in Toronto being really quite hot, and you don't necessarily want to start experiencing uh, extreme heat wave conditions in Canada. For a start, it triggers extraordinary vulnerability around forest fires. It also tends to trigger ecological, ecological changes, which can weaken ecosystems, which makes them much more vulnerable to fire. It can have profound impacts if the heat wave conditions occur at the wrong timing of the phenology of your wheat production for example. So it sounds quite attractive in one sense if you do warm a region by a couple of degrees, but that isn't how it works. That warming would tend to be concentrated in relatively short periods, be a lot more than a couple of degrees, and if your systems have been built or your uh, farming practices have been built with a certain climate in mind, and you start getting events well outside the observed range, it can have really major impacts on, on your economy, on your ecology, and on your populations. So uh, no, I don't think it's a good news story for Canada. If we were able to warm your winter by a couple of degrees, that might sound like a good idea, but that I, don't, I don't think that's how things will actually eventuate. All right. Given that, what further science do we need and what are the limits to how small you think we can go with these predictions? The major science that's necessary is perhaps not that important. Uh, And as a scientist, arguing that we don't need more science is not a particularly common narrative. It is very attractive for the climate science community to be able to build better models, informed by better data, finessing the spatial detail at much higher resolution. So there have been calls, which I would strongly support, for instance, of being able to get the climate models down to, say, a 20-kilometer spatial resolution so that there's certain characteristics of the atmosphere that we would begin to capture much more explicitly, and I think we'd build better predictive skill and a whole range of things like that. But the main message from our paper is that we have probably erred too generously on the emissions that have been discussed across the global community. And we have probably erred as a science community in being a little conservative in how fast climate can change. And we have also had our eye on the averages more so than the extremes. Now, that's a general statement. There are some outstanding groups in in North America and in Europe that have focused on extremes. But in general, the climate community has been really interested in how much will the global average warm. And I think what our paper says is it doesn't matter really what the global average warms. It matters critically on how climate warms spatially by country and how that warming is translated into days of heat or cold or days of extreme rainfall because those are the things that can break a drainage system, break a health system, damage an ecosystem. 
So most of what I think our paper is about is a call to indicate that we have been too generous on the scale of emissions that should be permitted. But if I was going to take the science further, I would encourage the research communities to be targeting the nature and the statistics of extreme events into the future over how much the planet as a whole will warm. Please tell us about the lead author of this paper. Sonia Senevratne, uh, she's a professor at ETH in Zurich. She has a long, quite phenomenal career in climate science. She was the uh, lead author, for instance, on what's called the SREX report, which you can Google, which is our state-of-the-art knowledge of how extremes exist and occur within the climate system. Is there anything else that I've missed that you would like to tell our listeners? I think really just to sum up, what our paper has highlighted are how extremes will change at regional scales, that it's not just the average that matters, and it's how those extremes will change by region or by country that's very important. And I'm hoping that one of the things that will flow from this is that countries will begin to do a systematic assessment of their vulnerability to significantly more warming than they have assumed with the two degrees. So if countries have been looking at their vulnerability to two degrees of warming, they're missing the point. They need to know what their country will warm by, and they then need to look at the systems within that country and see whether their systems are resilient to warming at three, four, five degrees. And if a country like Canada can demonstrate it's resilient to warming in certain periods of the year of four or four degrees or five degrees, well, you may have some time to, um, to build improved socioeconomic and environmental systems to, to withstand additional warming. But my guess is that most countries will discover that they are extremely vulnerable economically and environmentally and socially to the sorts of regional scale warmings that we describe in this paper. And perhaps it's a bit of a wake-up call that two degrees ain't safe and many of our countries are more vulnerable to global warming than the public have generally assumed. Dr. Andy J. Pittman is the director of Australia's ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate System Science. He's at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. You can find out more information on all of this in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Andy, thank you so much for talking with us on Radio Ecoshock. You're very welcome. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. There are limits to what humanity can do on this planet and still survive. Johan Rockstrom has led a team that mapped out those planetary boundaries. Rockstrom is the executive director of the Stockholm Resilience Center. He teaches at Stockholm University and holds many roles in the scientific community. We'll talk about his latest book written with Matthias Klum, Big World, Small Planet. Johan Rockstrom, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, and a great honor to be with you. One boundary set by world governments in Paris was to avoid heating the planet 2 degrees C above the pre-industrial levels. Some scientists say 2 degrees of warming is already built in. We're heading into the danger zone. Do you agree or disagree? No, I, I agree. You know, the planetary boundary science, which is the basis of the book Big World, Small Planet, concludes exactly in line with what you're saying, that the climate planetary boundary, in fact, is even lower than 2 degrees Celsius. We put it at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 
the aim that the Paris Climate Agreement in the end really, really set out for, which means that it aligned itself with science. Now, the drama here is that we have already warmed the planet with an, an average temperature rise of one degree Celsius, but a lot of science indicates clearly that we are uh, very soon, if not already today, committed to almost one and a half degrees Celsius because of all the heat which is stored in the ocean and because of the cooling caused by air pollution, which is a paradox that actually air pollution, which uh, destroys the health of people, is actually helping us by cooling the planet by basically shedding away incoming solar radiation. So we are probably close to one and a half degrees Celsius and we're moving very quickly towards two degrees Celsius. So yes, there is a, a danger zone there. However, there is a lot of evidence on the plate today showing clearly that we can transition towards a decarbonized future faster than we have previously thought, thanks to the ability to scale economically attractive renewable energy technologies from photovoltaics to wind power to biomass to different forms of you know, hydro and, and even nuclear to some extent, which can allow us to transition quickly. And what science also shows very clearly is if we want to settle at around one and a half to two degrees Celsius, meaning below two degrees Celsius, we will not only have to decarbonize and, and leave the fossil fuel era behind us within you know, 30, 40 years, we also need to transition into a phase in the second part of the century where we have negative emissions, meaning we take out more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than we are emitting into the atmosphere. And this can be done by working both with nature, using biomass, for example, plants and trees that take up carbon dioxide and transform it into charcoal and plug it back into the soil, or through different kinds of geoengineering systems, which we call carbon capture and storage, where you backplug technologies and coal-fired plants, for example, to suck out carbon dioxide, concentrate it, and suck it back into the crust of the earth. So even though it's absolutely true that we are in a very dire situation and there's an urgency, there is increasing evidence that a transition into a world below 2 degrees Celsius, below the climate planetary boundary, is, is actually doable, even though the situation is, is challenging. Under a high emission scenario, if we don't make that, I have seen maps projecting wide bands of deserts around the subtropics in this century. You are known for in-depth research on water resources and how to farm with less. Can we cope with changes to agriculture under climate change? Yeah, this is a, a very important question. Now, and there are two parts uh, of answer. I mean, one is where you started off. You're absolutely right. We are following a pathway if we continue business as usual, if we do not implement what we have now promised from heads of state of all the world's countries to do in Paris, then yes, we would be first hitting right through the ceiling of the climate planetary boundary of staying under two degrees. And we would very likely take us to three, four degrees Celsius, which can be uh, you know, described in no other way than being a disastrous future for humanity from the drought-prone agricultural regions in the center of the U.S. all the way to the tropical, vulnerable countries across Africa and the low-lying island states in the Indian and Pacific Oceans that would have to be evacuated even. So yes, that would be a very dangerous scenario and the number one victim 
is everything that depends on fresh water and among those is really food production as uh, the first victim. But on the other hand, we can see, as I mentioned earlier, the possibility of transitioning in line with the Paris Agreement to avoid those most dangerous outcomes, meaning that passing two degrees Celsius, it would still require clearly major investments in adaptation. Remember that the last time we had one degree Celsius warming and when the planet finally, finally stabilized itself after that disequilibrium caused by one degree warming, we had on average six meter sea level rise on Earth. So, you know, we're, we're very likely, even if we wouldn't reach that high level of, of change, to be forced to invest heavily in dealing with the rising frequency of droughts, rising frequency of heat waves, rising frequency of disease, and, and an irreversible increase in sea level rise. So, you know, however we twist and turn this, we will have to adapt to unavoidable change, but we have to avoid unmanageable change. Now, at a TED Talk, Johan, you told an audience that climate change may not actually be our greatest challenge. What did you mean by that? Yes, and that is uh, scientifically supported, even though I recognize how provocatively it can appear, because, of course, the global climate crisis is debated and, and at the center stage of our focus, and, of course, it is a major, major challenge. However, we are at the sixth mass extinction of species in the world. We are, therefore, as human beings, killing off everything from pollinators to large predators like tigers and cod and sharks at a pace equivalent with a global mass extinction. Among these six mass extinctions, by the way, is, for example, when we lost the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago due to an asteroid catastrophe. So we are in a, in a very, very dire situation with regards to losing biodiversity. Now, remember that losing species on this earth is not a moral issue just to protect everyone's right to exist as living beings. It is really our toolbox to allow ourselves to have a good well-being on this planet because we need biodiversity to, you know, capture carbon, clean water, have good uh, quality of air, and to produce food. So there's no other way than you know, maintaining nature to have a good future. Now, the dilemma is the following. These are two crises, biodiversity crisis, climate crisis. However, the climate crisis has a perfect substitution. We can follow the conventional economic theory to say, okay, we recognize that oil, coal, and natural gas is too dangerous, it's too costly, and therefore does not deliver. And moreover, we're reaching a situation with peak of cheap fossil fuel sources such as oil, so we transition into a substitute and therefore can deliver modern energy supply through solar voltaics, wind, biomass, hydro, nuclear, and other innovations. This is what economic theory has always as, as the way we can move towards innovation and development. And we're seeing evidence that this can be done. So we actually have a solution which moreover can deliver for human well-being. How is it on biodiversity? Well, you see, there's no substitute. You lose a species and it's gone forever. There's no regret period. You lose fresh water or you run out of fresh water, there's no alternative. So biodiversity and what we call the living nature, fresh water, land, biodiversity, has no substitution. There's only one way and one solution, which is to safeguard the natural capital we have. And that is much tougher because it requires that we understand the need to preserve what we have 
to allow our children and future generations to thrive on Earth. So that is why I'm saying that perhaps we might find in the end, paradoxically, that the climate challenge is the easier one because we actually have a substitutable, economically viable solution, uh, while biodiversity is a much more complex and spread and deeper and, and fatal outcome. Johan, what is the fourth industrial revolution and what could that mean? Yeah, so this is both a great excitement, but also a concern if we, so to say, allow it to live on its own. The fourth industrial revolution is the notion, which is backed up by more and more evidence and coming not least from the great innovation powerhouses in the U.S., from Silicon Valley to MIT and then the great corporations you have in the U.S., showing that we are right at the verge, as we speak right now, starting a new exponential journey into the digital revolution going to scale in the world, nanotechnology, biotechnology, allowing us to truly be able to think of a world where we can achieve basically abundance for all in the world by taking a major step in terms of delivery of goods and services thanks to or, or because of technological advancements, and that this is going very, very fast. Now, that is good news. It allows us to move and take a major next step into a modern future in the 21st century. The challenge, though, is the following. We know, if you look into the past, that essentially all technological advancements have accelerated our journey towards unsustainable development. It has sped up our ability to undermine resources and ecosystems and climate on Earth. So if an industrial revolution is allowed to occur on its own, it could actually accelerate our journey towards hitting these planetary boundaries even more severely. So our hypothesis in the big world, small planet, what we're suggesting is that a fourth industrial revolution has to be capped by planetary boundaries. And perhaps surprising to many is that our very deep conviction is that that would not halt the, the Industrial Revolution. It would rather deepen it even further. You know, if you say, oh, it's not enough to be really, really superbly innovative when it comes to the next generation of vehicles or next generation of aviation or next generation of smartphones, they also have to now be entirely sustainable, possible to recycle and occur within a safe operating space. I believe that that would deepen the innovation even further and make us even smarter. So... There's no contradiction between planetary boundaries and the fourth industrial revolution, but it's an exciting but also very challenging moment. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, the Swedish scientist, Johan Rockström. In your book, Johan, you say we can trigger a new wave of sustainable technological inventions to solve our ecological crisis. I just talked with another well-known Swede, Alf Hornborg. Alf says there is no technical solution to the problems of technology. We need social and ideological change instead. What are your thoughts? Yes, and I know Alf Homburg very well, and uh, he raises a very important issue, and I'm so glad you, you bring this forward, because 
it's absolutely true. There's no convincing analysis to show that technological breakthroughs alone can take us towards a sustainable and equitable future with 10 billion co-citizens when we're a big world on a small planet. In fact, the pace by which we need to uh, decarbonize our climate system, share the remaining rare earth metals, produce more than 50% food to feed humanity on existing land because we cannot expand into virgin ecosystems anymore. We cannot empty the oceans from more wild fish because we're running out of fish. These insights force us to recognize that technology can take us a certain part of the way, but we also need behavioral change. And that requires value change and particularly equity change. I mean, it's, it's equally dramatic that we are a rich minority, some 1.5 billion of 7.2 billion people who has caused the bulk of the global environmental risks on planet Earth. And it's equally you know, acute to recognize that that minority is, is equivalent to the inequity challenge we're facing with you know, a small percentage of the world's population owning more capital than 50% of the poorest in the world. So it's absolutely true that we have to combine a fourth industrial revolution not only with a deep sustainability mind shift, but also with a deep equity and values mind shift, and that all of this will require from us all uh, a sense of behavioral change and lifestyle change, which has to be founded on the recognition that we have to share the remaining ecological space on Earth. But I really want to emphasize that that ethical dimension and this lifestyle change, there's no evidence to suggest that that's a sacrifice, that this is you know, moving backwards, it's rather moving forward into the future. And I really want to remind ourselves that the real sacrifice, the time we would really have to give up on our lifestyles, is by continuing business as usual. Because business as usual is what all science shows will take us across tipping points, which would undermine our ability to have good lives. And therefore, the most dire sacrifice to our lifestyles is by continuing as usual, a sustainable future is, is sort of say the only pathway that could plausibly give us the room to allow ourselves to have a good future. So, you know, you have to combine these issues, but recognizing that a modern thriving future is today basically prerequisited by a sustainable framework. Well, given our situation, what are the most urgent problems we need to tackle first? Well, our conclusion in the Big World Small Planet is that we have two major, let's say, urgent transformations we need to accomplish. And the first one is, not surprisingly, to bend the curve of emission of greenhouse gases and move rapidly towards a decarbonization of our entire world economy, which means leaving fossil fuels behind us. The number one issue is to halt all use of coal and coal fire plants, deregulate or, or stop using oil and natural gas and move into renewable energy technologies. That is de facto an urgent challenge we face. And the second one is to transition into sustainable food production in the world, because it may surprise you that agriculture is the single largest cause behind us threatening planetary boundaries. Food production is the single world largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Agriculture is the single world's largest consumer of fresh water, the single world largest polluter of our waterways due to too much nitrogen, phosphorus, and chemicals, and the single largest loss of biodiversity. So sustainable food means 
a healthy planet. And moreover, which is quite interesting, is that sustainable food can also unlock many of the strategies towards more healthy diets. So I would say that the two most urgent challenges is to move towards a renewable energy future and a sustainable food future. And that would take us a long way in terms of a future within planetary boundaries. And there is a program that you're involved in called Future Earth. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes. You see, the planetary boundary framework, which then lands scientifically at the conclusion that we now need to define the Earth system processes that regulates the stability and resilience of the Earth system and that we have to quantify biophysical boundaries within which we can have a safe future on a stable planet. All that evidence arises from 30 years of extraordinary advancement in global change research, what we call Earth system science, which simply put is the science of understanding how the Earth operates and also how we humans interact with Earth. Now, that science started in the 1970s and has progressed in a number of large international programs from the World Climate Research Program to something called the International Human Dimensions Program and the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, looking at land and climate and atmosphere and interactions with the world economy. Now, some five years ago, the recognition was that now we have so much evidence that we're facing this urgent need to transform the world towards a global sustainable future that this enormous advancement in earth system science needs to take a next step, needs to basically integrate social natural sciences and needs to focus more on science exploring pathways for a sustainable future. And after a long consultation among scientists across the world, with stakeholders from business and policy and civil society, the result is Future Earth. So Future Earth is a step up of the global sustainability science community from climate change to biodiversity to economics to start and and really address the integrated challenges and opportunities facing humanity to transition into a global sustainable future. And Future Earth has has just started. It has, uh, interestingly, a distributed headquarters where the U.S. is is one of the uh, hubs for the global leadership based in in Colorado with a number of top, top scientists across the U.S., Uh, one hub in in Sweden, one in Canada, one in Japan, one in France. And uh, Future Earth has the objective of being, you know, a science platform for collaborative research, searching solutions for humanity's transition towards a, a stable and resilient future. For your book, Big World, Small Planet, you didn't team up with another scientist, but with a fairly famous photographer, you started talking about the role of beauty. What has beauty got to do with science and policy? (laughs) Yes, this might be surprising that a scientific conclusion after 30 years of Earth system science, combining, you know, linking climate science to complex research on uh, ocean acidification, lands at a conclusion that a key message to humanity is that if we can safeguard the remaining beauty on Earth, we stand a very good chance of a prosperous future. And and that might be surprising, but, you know, there's something fundamental here, and it is about the collision between emotions and and the rational, between brain and heart, represented in the big, world, small planet with the science that we summarize, 
and with the photography that, that Matthias is, is displaying. But our conclusion is serious, which is that we live in a world of rising cultural and religious and political turbulence. And, and we, we focus so much of our efforts on everything that is so different between the, the Muslim world and the Christian world and the North and the South, etc., and then all the divides we have. But our hypothesis is that we have a universal value. We have a universal value across every culture, every nation, every corner of this planet, which is that every individual has a relationship to his or her nature at home, and that this nature is what we define as beauty, and that if we can safeguard the beauty we know, and if we all can do that, we stand a good chance of that adding up towards safeguarding the beauty of the planet. So if you look out of your window, what you really care for in nature, be it your closest tree or a little meadow or as I have, just uh, little rocky spots on the coast of the Baltic Sea outside of the island where I live. These are fundamental, valuable, not to say prerequisites, for us to have a good planet that can continue to deliver human well-being. So the point is that, you know, coming back to this fundamental core of, of sustaining the beauty can be a key part of our mind shift towards a sustainable, innovative transformation in the future. I have to agree, it's beauty that powers me and keeps me going even in difficult times. From Stockholm, we've been speaking with Johan Rockström, one of the world's preeminent natural scientists, I think I can say. Johan is co-author of the book Big World, Small Planet. He's the executive director of the Stockholm Resilience Center and teaches at Stockholm University. You can find links to his work in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Johan, thank you so much for talking with us on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to this very important program. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Radio EcoShock. What is the answer to giant power companies with equally giant greenhouse gas emissions? Citizens doing it for themselves. One of the best examples is co-op power in New England. We'll find out what it is and how this could work in your community from Lynn Benander. She's the CEO of Co-op Power and Northeast Biodiesel. From Massachusetts, Lynn, a warm welcome to Radio EcoShock. Very nice to join you today. Why don't we start with Co-op Power? What is that? Co-op Power is a decentralized network of community energy cooperatives serving Massachusetts and southern Vermont. And we help people build community ownership of energy solutions in their community that they're really looking to help them get off of fossil fuels, reduce their energy costs, and um, build their local economies. Well, many of us would like to get something like this started. Can you tell us how did co-op power get off the ground? There were many similar efforts that kind of were small streams that contributed to what we're doing. And I think the first impetus for our creation came from um, someone working for the Department of Public Utilities in the state of Vermont. And they were looking out for consumers and said, you know, the electric industry is deregulating. And in Massachusetts, we don't have many um, municipally owned energy companies. We don't have many, we don't have any rural electric cooperatives that serve most of the rest of the United States. And so there isn't a real consumer voice in Massachusetts and, and not as much either in Vermont. So 
he was concerned that consumers were going to need more representation as the energy uh, industry changed and asked us to work together to create local solutions for communities related to the energy industry. When I heard about this, my first reaction was to picture a group of middle-class white folks getting together to bypass the system and save a few bucks. Your website suggests something quite different. Who is participating? Yeah, we have, uh, we're have. we a multi-class and multi-race cooperative. In some of our early meetings, we in fact, our business planning meetings often included a couple hundred people, and we were presenting each option as we went along. And uh, one of the options that was presented was doing solar electric installations on the roof of our members' homes. And as we were discussing that proposal, there was kind of a rumble in the room, and I was facilitating and kind of was looking around trying to figure out what was the dis-ease that was building. And when I asked, I said, it seems like some people are uncomfortable with us talking about this proposal, what's what's happening? And some people stood up and said, this is just solutions for wealthy people on their homes. And if you don't own a home, you can't access. And we thought co-op power was going to be here for us, including renters and people with limited income. And so they said, you know, we don't really want co-op power focusing on this particular product and services. We want co-op power focusing on things that are more accessible across income, across different kinds of communities. And the rest of the members resonated with that. And we made a, a much more focused commitment to making sure that what we do is available to everybody. The banks aren't known for being super friendly to people who want to do things for themselves. How did you get around that? We've raised a lot of money from our members. When people saw something they wanted to see happen, they would invest in it together. One of our members, for example, lent money to a a church in a low-income community in Boston so that that church could do energy efficiency upgrades and, you know, get paid back. The church has paid back our member over time. So, We've had partnerships between our members and people that wanted to get good stuff done on their buildings, on their homes, and we've also had people volunteer, so we get 15 people that can go out and put up a solar hot water system on somebody's house with volunteer labor, and if you help four people do it, then they'll come help you do it on your house, so we are able to leverage um, that kind of community support to get the costs way down. In your experience, are people less likely to default on community-financed projects? It's funny, that's not really a word in our vocabulary. We're working together to make things happen, and there's a movement in the United States called the Slow Money Movement, and it's really about patient capital that's very committed to building local economies, to building local food solutions, and I would say we're part of that slow money movement, building local energy solutions. And so the payment terms aren't always on time, but there's a full commitment to making things whole over time. Lynn Benander, could you tell us about your experience in helping set up individual entrepreneurs, say in solar or whatever, versus getting other co-ops going? We've helped six companies get started as solar installation businesses. That's been an interesting experience for us. One of the first projects we worked on was helping a uh, employee-owned cooperative get started in in building mostly solar electric systems. They've done some solar hot water. Uh, Their name is PV Squared, and 
We helped write their first business plan and get first grants in for them. They've grown so much over the last 10 years, and they're very highly respected in the field, and they're the installer that we've chosen to build our first community shared solar project. We're really proud of them and all that they've accomplished, and we're so delighted that they're still around to help us to do good work in the world, to partner with us. We've also helped individuals start solar installation businesses, and most of those have sold off to other businesses, and they're not available to us anymore. Uh, And then there's one exception, Renewed by the Sun in Turner's Falls, uh, has continued to provide support for us. So as I understand it, there's sort of subgroups of co-ops that work with co-op power. Could you explain how that works and maybe tell us how many people work with co-op power and then how many employees the whole group of co-ops might employ, if you know? Yes. Co-op power is one cooperative. We have 30 staff people that work out of two locations, one in the Boston area connected to the Boston Metro East Community Energy Co-op and one in Hatfield, Massachusetts, that's connected to the Hamden Community Energy Co-op, Franklin Community Energy Co-op, and Hampshire Community Energy Co-op. And those two locations provide energy efficiency services to 30 to 40 homes a week, as well as a whole range of all the other products and services that we offer. But most of our staff work in the energy efficiency division. And what pays off fastest in New England? Is it solar electricity or solar hot water heaters? And also, I want to know, is it possible for solar hot water heaters to still work in cold New England winters? (laughs) Solar hot water is a great solution here in New England. And if there were not public subsidies, solar hot water would be by far the best investment because there's quite a lot of money, especially in Massachusetts, uh, but also in Vermont, incentives that encourage people to build solar electric systems. Those are also quite cost effective. But the best investment for anybody, anytime, is in energy efficiency. That's where you're going to get the biggest bang for every dollar you spend to air seal it and insulate it so that it uses a lot less energy for both heating and cooling. Let's move on, Lynn, to biodiesel. What is Northeast Biodiesel? Northeast Biodiesel is a project that was initiated by our Franklin and Hampshire Community Energy Cooperatives about 10 years ago, and it's actually a manufacturing plant that's going to be launching next month that will make uh, 1.75 million gallons a year of biodiesel that we can use in our oil heat systems and diesel engines. And it's the biodiesel that we're making is made from recycled cooking oil from restaurants and cafeterias and food processing centers. Right, because biodiesel got a terrible name as a false solution, I think, when industrialized agriculture switched from growing food to making heavily subsidized gas substitutes. So I guess this is quite different from that. It is, and yet that whole process, the the public perception process that biodiesel went through when it was connected more with virgin soy, biodiesel, and, and ethanol, that whole transformation in the industry where biofuels were sexy and hot and everybody wanted to be a part of that revolution, and then all of a sudden, you know, we were on the on the most wanted list. And people were very confused about what was good and what wasn't good. And 
the kind of biodiesel we've been working to produce from the beginning is a very positive environmental contribution. It's the only way that tractors and construction vehicles and trucks and buses can move in a, with clean fuel. And so we have these large diesel vehicles, and this is the best fuel for them to use as we're transitioning off of fossil fuels and into a cleaner economy that burns 86% cleaner than diesel fuel. So reducing our carbon emissions and particulate emissions is a very important part of our transition to a cleaner economy. I got a chance to hear Mary Powell from Green Mountain Power speak. So she runs a utility in in, uh, southern Vermont. She was such a breath of fresh air. She's talking about what the utility of the future looks like. She's working in a small town of Rutland, Vermont, looking at how to take that very limited resource community off the grid. I think there are visionaries within the utilities that are looking at what it means now with the development of of distributed generation, what kinds of possibilities are available for really improving the lives of people in our communities. So, Lynn, does your work with Positive Solutions help you deal with worries about climate change and our future? Absolutely. I remember when my children were small, I read a study about whether children were afraid of nuclear holocaust. When I was a kid, I had to sit underneath my desk, you know, during these little drills where we were taught what to do if there was a nuclear bomb that fell near us. And uh, there was a study that showed that if the children's parents were working for solutions to for a more peaceful way of settling our conflicts and um, looking for uh, ways to get rid of the nuclear weapons, that those children whose parents were involved in those were more hopeful. And I made a commitment to my own children to be involved in and creating positive solutions because I think having hope is one of the things that helps us keep our humanity. And when we lose hope, we end up doing things that really compromise ourselves and our communities. Well, I realize this whole project has been many years in the making, but if you could speak to some of our listeners who say, yeah, I I want co-op power in my community, are there two or three steps that they can start to get the ball rolling? So on our website, which is coopower.coop, there's a section that says bring co-op power to your community that describes how you might go about doing that. And if you're in a community in New England or New York, we would be glad to talk with you about partnering with you to help create a community energy co-op. And if you're outside of uh, New England or New York, we're also very happy to share the resources that we have on our website. We try to make uh, many things available. There's also a lot of groups that we're connected to around the country and in other parts of the world that are working on very similar things. And we've got some of those links on our website. And we're also glad to share, you know, to talk more with people too, especially by email. That's the best way to get in touch with us. So we've been talking with Lynn Benander, the CEO of Co-op Power and Northeast Biodiesel in New England. Find out more at coopower.coop. And you can find links to Lynn and everything we've talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much, Lynn. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much for having us on. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. 
That's radio at ecoshock.org. We are out of time. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. It stops. You can't drag me into this. You, you can't. All I want to do is drag the truth out of you. And I've told you the whole truth.